0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This week, we'll take a look at a fairly big change in science instruction in California, a much greater emphasis on physics instruction. And that's not just for those on a more advanced track or for those students wanting to become engineers or go into other STEM careers, but for all students, We'll be talking with the president of the California Science Teachers Association to get her perspective. We'll also talk about how much it would really
1: cost to create a high-quality early education system, as Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislature say they want to create, and to do it without putting the burden of the costs on the backs of poorly paid daycare and preschool teachers. That appears to be the case now.
0: But first, John, let's take a closer look at the relatively new next-generation science standards that are being rolled out in schools across the state. As you know, the science standards put a great emphasis on hands-on experimentation and real-world applications, take a more interdisciplinary approach to try to integrate various science disciplines.
1: And three years ago, the state adopted the new California Science Framework to provide guidance on implementing the new science standards.
0: It calls for all students to be exposed to physics in some fashion. Parents may have noticed that the high schools that their children are attending are encouraging students to take physics and not to be daunted by it. Some schools will continue to offer physics as a standalone subject as part of what is called a four-year model, that's chemistry, biology, physics, and earth sciences. And others will include physics in a three-year course
1: sequence, which is biology, chemistry, and physics with earth sciences woven into each course.
0: We're happy to have Shauna Metcalf, who's president of the California Science Teachers Association. She's also a science specialist with the Glendale Unified School District in Southern California. Thanks for joining us today, Shauna.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So I wonder if you could just explain what are the changes? Hasn't physics always been taught in the schools?
2: Physics has always been taught in the schools as a separate science course that some students had access to. But not all students. Math was often the barrier to students getting into a physics course or kids were just steered into other advanced sciences if they had had an interest in pursuing a medical career when they got to college. They were often geared towards different elective science courses. With the adoption of California Next Generation Science Standards and the California Science Framework There was really more of a belief that all students should have access to the physics standards to prepare them for their futures, not just those who would traditionally be good in math or go into the science fields.
0: You must be thrilled that the frameworks put more emphasis on physics, but why was there a feeling that physics was so important?
2: This was a visionary approach in order to try to ensure that all students received access to all of the base standards. A lot of the problems that the kids will be facing in their futures will require physics answers. Many of the jobs that they will have will have a physics basis to it. And so we just wanted to ensure that all students had access to all of the standards, not some of the students with some of the standards.
1: How will physics be taught at Glendale? Will it be a separate course or will it be part of an integrated course?
2: After two years of research and deliberations, the Board of Education recently adopted the three-course model that was provided as an option in the California Science Framework that teaches the concepts that would traditionally be in biology, chemistry, and physics with Earth and space science integrated into them. So our physics course in Glendale will be a physics in the universe course that embeds earth science and space science standards into the physics course.
0: And just to clarify for those of us who are not totally familiar, what does earth sciences cover that other courses don't?
2: The geological history of earth, earthquakes, weather patterns, and then there's also a section of those standards that are the astronomy section.
0: Do you see this ushering in a kind of a new era in in physics instruction in California?
2: Absolutely. There will be a need as high schools transition to whichever course model they design or selected for additional physics courses, additional chemistry courses, and if they go with the four-course model, additional earth and space science courses.
0: Do we have the teachers that will be required to teach all these new courses or integrated courses that include physics?
2: As it stands right now, we are lacking in those physics teachers or the teachers for the additional courses that might be taught, but districts are finding creative solutions to recruit teachers, which are starting to emerge in the teacher prep programs. And they're also finding ways of getting their current teachers additional authorizations so that they can teach within those physics in the universe courses.
0: We're talking with Shawna Metcalf, president of the California Science Teachers Association. Also, she's a science specialist in the Glendale Unified School District. Let me just ask you about Glendale. How are you doing in your district in regards to science teachers? Do you have enough? Are you having challenges recruiting teachers? Where where do things stand?
2: Because we just adopted our course model and are going to be doing a slow implementation, we have a couple of years before we'll be teaching that physics in the universe course. So we have about two years to start recruiting and to start finding additional teachers, as well as to prepare some of our teachers that would like additional authorizations. So we're a few years out before we actually have to have all of the teachers, but we're very hopeful.
1: Do you know of any innovative programs around that either the CSU or different innovative programs funded by foundations that are encouraging college students to become physics teachers?
2: For the college students, no, I am not currently aware of any of those programs, but I do know that there are a couple of different universities that have been trying to work with current teachers on those authorizations. I know that Cal State Northridge has actually been doing quite a bit of work with helping teachers prepare to take the CSET exam in physics so that they can have that authorization as well as giving them a little bit of a boot camp on understanding the physics concept and decreasing any of the fear or anxiety that they have from not having been physics majors. And I believe that the University of Southern California is actually going to be working with some teachers on designing a program like that as well.
0: Diana Lambert, an EdSource reporter, wrote about this topic, and she raised the issue that we read about all the time, which is that people with a science background, math background, have so many other career options, and let's face it, probably more lucrative options. Is that really a major challenge right now?
2: I believe it's a major challenge for all of the sciences to pull students at the colleges into the educational field. Because many of them don't go into college majoring in a science with the intention of becoming a teacher from the very beginning. Those are usually elementary school teachers who go into it ready to go. I want to be a teacher. Whereas with a lot of science majors, it's throughout the course of their study that they start to realize that they have a passion for teaching others the science as well. And that's what leads them into the education arena.
1: How about recruiting mid-career science workers who are in the field who may want to become teachers? Is that a viable option?
2: Yes, that is definitely a viable option. I myself have worked with at least a dozen science teachers just in Glendale who didn't begin as teachers and realized mid-career that they wanted to make a different or a bigger impact on students.
1: Why not just pay science teachers more and respond to the market demand and just make them the highest paid teachers, perhaps? What do you think of that idea?
2: There are many programs out there already that allow for teachers who fall into a certain niche, whether it be for the field of study, so math teachers, science teachers, or who go into specific locations, the Title I schools with low socioeconomics, where they can actually have sometimes student loan forgiveness or different grants for working in those areas or in those fields. So we do already try to compensate for those specific skills and needs, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be additional things done in the future to help bring us more qualified science teachers.
0: We've been talking with Shauna Metcalf, president of the California Science Teachers Association. She's also a teacher at Glendale Unified School District. Sounds like these are pretty exciting times in the physics education field, Shauna, and we look forward to staying in touch with you as all of this unfolds.
2: Yes, it definitely is an exciting time for science education right now where we're giving all students access to all science.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: When we come back, we'll switch from high school science
1: to toddlers in preschool to discuss the high cost of quality early education.
0: Talking about early education, one point that keeps on getting made is that early childhood education workers, teachers, assistant teachers, administrators who work in preschool, child care centers, are paid terribly. In many cases, they barely get the minimum wage. A new report from the Economic Policy Institute in Washington and the Center for the Study of Child Care Employment at UC Berkeley addresses that issue and it comes up with some pretty startling figures so we're happy to have Leah Austin in the studio who's co-director of the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at UC Berkeley you are one of the co-authors of this report and the report contains some really big numbers in terms of what you think it would cost to provide the kind of early childcare system that I think California would like and that we could be proud of.
3: We came up with an estimate that looked at what is it that is involved in a quality early care and education system and in early care and education settings. And really the linchpin of quality are the teachers. You really need a skilled and stable workforce, and that includes teachers who are fairly paid, who can earn a living and not be experiencing the economic distress and insecurity we know that early educators today are indeed experiencing. So when we looked at what does that mean, we made some assumptions about paying teachers who work with young children similarly to their elementary school counterparts.
0: A lot of teachers feel they're underpaid.
3: Absolutely. I wouldn't disagree with that, but we did choose that as our marker and made some other assumptions about professional supports that teachers should have, like access to paid planning time, professional resources and development, things that early educators typically do not have. And when we put all this together, we came up with an estimate that ranges from 29.7 to 75.4 billion dollars for California. Or if you look at that as a per child cost, it's 30,000 to $37,000 per child.
0: Okay, so that's the total cost for the system from about you're saying $30 billion to $75 billion. You're including everything, right? From infant care to child care, preschool, and so on. Yes,
3: we are looking at what we call the birth to five or zero to five system sometimes, early care and education. So, children who are in formal group settings prior to kindergarten or in California prior to transitional kindergarten. And so that could be infants, it could be preschool age children, or it could be those toddlers in between.
1: Right now, we're funding about, uh, I don't know, 13, 14,000 per student in K 12. But on the other hand, The child-teacher ratio would be much smaller, which is one reason why it's more expensive, right?
3: Yes, you would actually expect early care and education on a per-child basis to be more expensive than, or to cost more, um, than elementary school education because you do have lower ratios. You have more teachers in the classroom. It's very common and it's almost always the case that you have more than one teacher in an early care and education setting you know in a child care center or a preschool classroom you have people who run early care and education programs in licensed home-based settings oftentimes there may only be one teacher but you're right you have much smaller ratios where you you may have a one teacher to six children one teacher to 12 children even one to three with infants
1: What's the average pay now for a child care provider or a preschool teacher? And I
0: imagine it varies depending on the setting, right?
3: It varies depending on the setting. Uh, If we look across the average in California, it is $13 an hour for someone working with young children. There is some variation by setting, whether that's someone working in a home-based setting, a center, and then the age of the child. We know in California, as is true across the country, that early educators who work with infants and toddlers earn less than their peers who work with preschool-aged children. So we do see those disparities across ages of children. But nonetheless, when we look even on the highest end of the pay spectrum, teachers are earning incredibly low wages. And that has real consequences for the individuals themselves who are doing this work, as well as their ability to provide the highest quality care and be as effective as they want to be.
1: I think you said a significant percentage is getting food stamps or eligible for food stamps and other sources of aid. Is that right?
3: Yes. In California, about 58% of the childcare workforce utilizes federal public income supports. So that's a marker of how low pay and wages are. And that's a conservative estimate because we only looked across four federal income programs. So we didn't look at things like housing subsidies or even childcare subsidies that families may be utilizing. Uh, workers may be utilizing who have young children themselves.
0: We're talking with Leah Austin, who's co director of the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at UC Berkeley and a co author of a provocative report that just came out looking at how much it would really cost to fund a high-quality child care system where teachers were paid living wages are comparable to what they paid at the K-12 system. So I think most people who've had kids in preschools or other early care settings know that the staff are not getting paid very much. The other side of it is that usually the parents are paying a lot to have the kids in child care. So it's not like anybody's getting rich off the current system. It's where the fees are already high and the childcare workers are getting paid these absurdly low wages. So for one thing, it doesn't seem like you could go to the parents and say, you need to pay X multiples of what you're currently paying. So this would suggest that it really is the state that would have to come up with additional funds. Is that the argument that you would be making?
3: Yes, that is the argument that I would make and... Believe the you know my co-authors on this paper as well, you know we have a system where parents cannot afford to pay. Teachers are largely subsidizing the system with their low wages, and it can be hard for people to see that because as you said, a parent may be paying upwards of ten thousand dollars per child for services, which is or more absolutely, and that's an astronomical amount for families to be able to come up with, but. When you put that into a program, by the time you pay for all of your other resources, your rent, your consumable goods, you know, then you have what's left to distribute to the teacher. So even though that's the biggest expense in a program, there is not enough of it relying on parent fees. And you cannot, you're right, you cannot go back and ask parents to pay more. And so it's really critical that we think about this and treat it as a public good, There's plenty of research out there about the benefits of high-quality early care and education. But if we're really going to deliver on that promise, we need a system that works for families, that can provide access for families where they're not economically distressed and where the educators themselves aren't subsidizing that system. How much
0: is the state spending now, approximately, on our early care system?
3: Well, the simple answer is not enough. Um, It's actually complicated to get to an exact figure because there are multiple funding streams. So we have federal dollars that come to California as they do to other states for programs like Head Start as well as child care subsidies. There's state-based child care subsidies as well, as well as state-funded public pre-K for some children. We do know in the public pre-K system in California, we're spending a little over $10,000 per child. And the public pre-K system tends to, despite how under-resourced it is, when you look across the early care and education system, it's more resourced than other parts of the system. So we can imagine that on a per-child basis, the state is spending much less.
0: And that $10,000 figure is about one-third or less of the real cost if we were paying teachers comparable wages. So let me just ask you, uh, finally, what is your expectation or hope that would come out of this report?
3: Well, I do really hope that someday we have a system in California that looks like this, although I, of course, am under no illusion that this will happen tomorrow. But it is really critical to grapple with this true cost of a quality early care and education system, because we have to have something that we can measure our current investments and any of our policy reforms. So we can understand how far we need to go. And we can understand how to prioritize investments. And I do think we have seen this happen in other communities outside of California, that when you get people talking about the cost and you get them past this sticker shock, they can think differently about what it takes to support a good system.
0: We've been talking with Leah Austin, who works with the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at UC Berkeley. You can read their very interesting, provocative paper online, also put out jointly with the Economic Policy Institute, right? That's correct. Well, thank you for speaking with us today. And interested to see if this report and the many people who agree with it, I'm sure, whether this will nudge the needle a little bit.
3: Thank you. We're looking forward to that ourselves, and think this will be a really great opportunity for people to think differently about what we need for kids and their teachers in the state.
0: That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the SD Beckel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be taking a summer break from the podcast next week, but look forward to reconnecting early August. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.